0: Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's really good to see you. Uh, my name's Luther. We haven't met before. Uh, um, I know that there's also a few people here from other congregations at St George North, and so it's great that you guys are, uh, are here to help uh, us think about this topic uh, together. Uh, can I say that as I as I start, uh, I know that some um, some of the things that I'm going to talk about tonight are are highly personal. Um, it can be. Uh, very painful to think about uh, these topics as well as very important. And so uh, you have to know that it's really important that after tonight's talk that a few things happen, that uh, that you're really graceful but also gracious but also truthful with each other. Uh, and then you're also quite gracious with me uh, in that um, I'm going to be saying things and dealing with topics and I won't be able to say everything that I'd like to say. And so I'd love to talk to you afterwards um about the things that I raise in this talk, but please be gracious with each other and truthful with each other. Uh, that would be good. Yeah, know that I raise this topic as your pastor who loves you, uh, and so uh, I think that's really important as, as as we begin. So why don't I pray, uh, and then we'll think about the ethics of the beginning of life together. Let's let's pray. Uh, my dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the giver of all life. Father, we thank you that in your goodness you have given us your Son, the Lord Jesus, that he has washed us clean father we thank you that you were pleased to have your son uh, the lord uh, become a human just like us that he was born of mary uh, that he lived a very human life uh, just like us father we thank you that you understand us because of jesus um, in all of our humanity and and Father, I pray that as we think about uh, the ethics of the beginning of life tonight, that you help us to be truthful, that you help me to have uh, wise things to say, that you would help us to be gracious with each other, uh, that you would help us to be bold, um, but also a compassionate community. And I, I pray this for Jesus' sake. Uh, amen. Uh, you'll find an outline uh, for the talk as you came in, and that would be really helpful. Uh, but can I say to start with, is that the measure of our Christianity, isn't it one of them, is how we treat the most vulnerable in our society. It really is. Um, because, don't you think that's true? Because I know that uh, it's not how we treat the powerful and the popular. Uh, the powerful and popular people in our society are very easy to look after. It's very easy to be nice to people who are powerful and popular. Uh, powerful and popular people are generally pretty easy to be around. Uh, Powerful and popular people generally look after themselves and powerful and popular people are generally pretty good at defending their own rights. And so it's easy to love uh, powerful and popular people. They don't give us too many dramas. Uh, In fact, we want to be around powerful and popular people. And yet, Jesus would say that one of the signs that we whether we actually um, get him, whether we actually understand him, is how we treat the most vulnerable people in our society. Um, if you're a kid at school, the bullies, the little kid, then you haven't quite understood Jesus yet, or you're struggling to live it out. Because Jesus, He often, He often avoided the rich people and the powerful and the influential. Uh, the people that Jesus chose to have dinner with was often the, um, the tax collector, the outcast, the leper, the the widow, um, uh, the blind man, the lame, uh, the vulnerable people. They're the people that Jesus actually chose to hang around with when he was on earth. And Jesus' brother James knew that. And when he wrote this letter in the New Testament, I think he was firing it straight at us because he knew that God carries close to his heart the weak and the vulnerable. And so James says this to us. He says, "...religion that is pure..." In other words, Christianity that's real and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself being unstained from the world. All right? In the first century, if you were an orphan or you're a widow, you're amongst the most vulnerable people in that society. Why? Because you had very few rights, you had very little power and you had basically no status at all. Uh, there was very little social welfare And so if you're an orphan or a widow, you are basically amongst one of the most vulnerable people along with the blind and the lame and the leper. And it's not how we treat the powerful and the popular people in our society that shows us whether our faith is real. Because they're the easy people to love. They're the people who want to hang around. It's how we treat the people whose voice is hard to hear or perhaps doesn't even get a chance to listen or to speak up. Now, the reason why I raise this topic over the next couple of weeks of the ethics of the beginning and the end of the human life is because this is a topic that all of us have to think through at one stage in our life. And you may be thinking tonight, this isn't relevant for me right now, but i tell you what, there's people in this room in which this is very relevant and because we love each other we want to think carefully about this as a community together and we want to think about how we treat the most vulnerable people in our society and the next two weeks I want to think about the very young and the very old. That's what I want us to think about. And there's so many questions as we come to this topic. Like, for example, uh, when does human life begin? And when does that human life deserve our protection of it? Uh, What are the arguments for and against abortion? Uh, What if a baby has something seriously wrong with it? Uh, What should we do then? How about contraception? As Christians, should we use contraception? Is that something that we should be involved in? Is that a Christian thing to do? Um, Is it okay to be involved in genetic screening and prenatal tests of babies to check if they're going to have abnormalities after their birth? Is that something that we should do? Uh, Should Christians use IVF and other assisted reproductive technologies? Is that something that's a good thing? Um, And how about how we treat those who are approaching the end of of their life? And perhaps they're approaching the end of their life in a lot of pain and we love them. And perhaps they're in our family. What do we do? And what do we do when governments suggest that they should be given well, choices they've never been given before legally? What should we do? Now, these are really complex and emotionally-laden questions. And the problem is, often as Christians, when we come to make decisions about this, it's really difficult. And the reason why it's really difficult, firstly, is because lots of us don't have the up-to-date information about the medical technologies that are involved. In other words, to put it nicely, we have no idea what we're talking about. And secondly, the reason why it's hard is because lots of us don't have a sound biblical framework to actually think through these decisions. And so I want to, want to help us with this. The other thing that's really tough about this is that we live in a pluralist society, right? Which basically means we live in a society with all sorts of people, have all sorts of views, and we're not going to come to a moral consensus on this because we don't have the same basis for working out morality like we used to have, perhaps, in years gone by. Uh, it's going to be difficult. But the thing is, is that when we go to the doctor, or perhaps we use some biotechnology or something like that, we never, as Christians, check God at the door. It's not like he's not involved with this. As Christians, our Christianity, our faith in the Lord Jesus affects every decision that we make. We never check God at the door. And yet we hope that our governments would make ethical decisions and we hope when they're making laws that we they would make laws that are based on an ethical framework, but we can only hope that they would make laws that are consistent with the Bible, but they don't always do. There are many things that are legal in Australia that to do, but Christians disagree with. Uh, and so that's one thing that makes this hard. But can I stop here for a minute and just say, before I ask the key question about all of this, is that this talk and these talks are not meant to induce uh, guilt. That's not what this is all about. Uh, some of us become Christians or change our views throughout our life. And so that means that some of us will have done things that perhaps we're now not proud of. That if we had our time again we would have done things differently. You may disagree with me and not have done things differently at all. And so you, and what I want to say in this is that there's enormous freedom for us to treat each other graciously. In other words, I'm going to try and not say anything flippant tonight. I'm not going to skate over things, but I know that this can be incredibly painful. So, just just know that whatever has happened in your life, that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has washed away all of your past, no matter what it is. And we need to know that. But this is the key question on this topic. It's this. Who is a person that needs our protection? Who is a person that needs our protection? Now, I know, I can remember in 2002 when the New South Wales Parliament was debating whether or not um, embryonic uh, humans, embryos, ought to be able to be used in scientific research. And they were trying to work this out. And I can remember it was going all over the papers. And Megan Best, in her book on this topic, she's come in a couple of weeks, she recalls this week and what was going on in the newspapers. And she talks with enormous frustration about what it was like to hear the way that embryos were being referred to in the papers. So, that some of the language that was used to refer to them was that they were dead, these embryos, that they were merely human cells, that they were medical products, that they were not even human at all. Now, Megan in her book says in the last 10 years, basically anyone who is thinking about this as embryologists, as scientists, have basically come to the conclusion that's very different to that. That basically embryos are accepted by scientists universally as embryonic humans, that they are little humans. Um, This is what we once were. You see that little picture? Well, it's a big picture. Uh, It's much smaller than that. Uh, That's a little zygote. That's what you were just hours after your parents uh, decided that it would be a good idea uh, for you to come into the world, or perhaps they didn't. But... Here you were, and your father's sperm and your mother's egg joined together, and you became a little zygote. That's what you and I were. That's when you became a human. That's true humanity. You didn't become a human sometime after that. That is your full humanity found in that little zygote. Now, I know this is basic biology, but when your father's sperm and your mother's egg joined together, you are what embryologists call a little zygote, do you know that, lots of you will know this, but our 46 chromosomes were present there and your full DNA code was present in that little zygote. right? All the genetic material that was required for our full adult humanity was present in that few hour old little zygote. Everything that determined how you would grow to this point was in that little cell do we know that and so all things being equal this is what happens that little cell multiplies and becomes bigger and bigger you go through pregnancy you end up being born you're a little toddler you're a child, you grow up a bit you miraculously survive the teenage years some of you haven't survived your teenage years yet and we're praying that you all make it Right? Don't you? I love you you know that right and we end up in adulthood and there is a direct line between you being a little zygote and where you where you are sitting right here right now. You didn't become a human somewhere between there and now. You became a human there. Like we know that at four weeks of age we were three millimeters long. Right? That that be and that's when our heart starts to beat our brain develops, thyroid, eyes, ears, arms, legs develop. By six weeks, we're 1.6 centimetres long. Do you know at that point that um, your face and your feet develop more, your toes start to grow onto your feet, fingers start to grow on your hands? And you know on this that the scientists and the theologians have no disagreement whatsoever that you are human right from a zygote. And the Bible says exactly the same thing because when we come to the Bible and we see what it says about us as humans and how we ought to treat each other, we always go back to the creation. That's the most important point. And the point is, is that every single one of us has been made in the image of God, no matter what we look like. And that's why we're to be treated equally and with dignity and with respect. And the creation story shows us this. So, so have a look at this verse uh, from Genesis chapter 1. Uh, God made us in his image. Look at Genesis 1, and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created mankind in his image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Male and female, both created in the image of God. A little zygote is more valuable than a huge whale. Why? Because the little zygote is human and the whale is not. We alone are made in the image of God and that's what qualifies each one of us to be treated with dignity and to be treated with respect and to be considered a person. That's what it's about. And it doesn't depend on what functions you have. And some people disagree with this. And they'll say that, no, our humanity depends on what you can do. So, to be considered human, you need to be able to do certain things. You need to be able to think. You need to be able to not be something. But the Bible would disagree with that totally. It's the exact opposite to that. The respect that we're owed as human beings doesn't depend on what you can do. Why is that so important? Well, it's going to become very important next week when I talk about how we treat people at the end of their life. Because if you lose the ability to do something, like think, does that make you any less human? What if you could never think in the first place? Does that make you less human? Not at all. In fact, if people lose their ability to do something, they require more care from us and more respect from us not less. The Bible is really clear on this. We are precious and made in the image of God. And the fact that we are fallen humanity, that the image of God within us has been marred, that doesn't change anything. Um, I've got an illustration for this that I heard from Megan in her book. Um, who would like this $20? Brennan, would you like this? Yeah, yeah. How much is it worth? 20 bucks. Okay. Alright, you Ready? Is this legal? I don't even know if this is legal to do. <laughs> That's not legal. Okay, don't. Yeah, Brendan, do you still want this? Okay. Now, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Give it back later. Yeah. Um, because the whole reason was, even though it, I sort of treated that twenty-dollar note badly, it still holds its intrinsic value. Yeah. Now, since the fall, yes, the image of God within us has been marred and it's been affected, but we don't lose any of our value after the fall. After the fall, we are still perfectly made in the image of God. It's a marred image, but we don't lose our value because we're fallen humanity. This is a verse that came in the Bible after the fall, and it talks about how the shedding of human blood is judged with capital punishment. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man. For God made man in his image. To take the life of another is a serious crime in God's eyes. But when does human life actually begin? Well, it's pretty clear that it doesn't begin at birth. It doesn't at all. God had a relationship with us when we were still kicking around in the womb. That's very clear from Psalm 139. Have a look at this. It says, for it was, it was you, Lord, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless, all the days, all of my days, Someone can fix that up. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. The psalmist in those verses, thanks Drew, you're a legend there. In those verses, the psalmist pictures in poetic language what God has done. He's created us. He has formed us. He has knit us together. Um, His eyes saw us when we were formless. Do you know that the Hebrew word behind formless in verse 16 is actually the word "golem." Yes, Lord of the Rings Golem." That's where they got it from. It's true. And what the word means, the Jews use that word to describe the very first stage of life after conception. God's eyes saw you when you're a little zygote, when you're a tiny little embryo. They had another word for a later developed fetus. This was the word that they used for the earliest times of your life. God saw you when you are a zygote. Well, how about this? I don't know, i picked this up in Megan's book and you can tell me if you think this is right. You know when Mary and Elizabeth got together? You know, Mary got the news from the angel Gabriel that she was going to bear a son. His name would be Jesus, right? And in her early pregnancy, she took off to see Elizabeth, her relative who was pregnant with John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Do you remember that? Well, this is what it says. Uh, in Luke uh, chapter 1, it says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, You are most blessed of women and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me? Elizabeth says, That the mother of my Lord should come to me. For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. So what Luke is saying is that Jesus and John, both not born yet, they're both in utero, were at the meeting between Mary and Elizabeth. They were both there. And because when Gabriel came, Mary went with haste to go and see Elizabeth, it's likely that Jesus would have been a blastocyst at this point. Jesus was a five to seven day old, possibly embryo, at this meeting and Elizabeth calls him her Lord. Whatever you think about that, from the very earliest moments of our existence, the Bible considers us to be human, to be people, the vulnerable, tiniest of little people, made in the image of God, in relationship with Him, and worthy of our care, and in need of our care. Now, I know that, as a guy about to talk about abortion, that uh, this is a really tricky thing to do, Uh, but I do it because I love you as as your pastor, okay? Now, we have to understand the the view that we have on this topic is because of the Bible's view and what it says about us as people, that we are created in the image of God and precious to him. Do you know the Australian Bureau of Statistics says that 80,000 abortions happen in Australia every single year? That's the equivalent of a primary school every single day. And we don't need research to tell us that it's not, not only we need our friends to tell us that it's not only children that are affected by this. Right? Often women who have an abortion suffer through immense pain that lasts their entire lifetime, well beyond the time when their child would have left home. And the so-called painless option that abortion is said to be by many clinics turns out to be not so painless um, at all. Um, here's a couple of stories from um, a couple of women about their uh, experiences
1: the lady who met me at the local family planning service treated me as rudely as anyone could treat someone there was no caring or concern in her manner no options were presented to me. She said I was stupid to get pregnant, and as I was 18 and at university, she presumed I wanted an abortion. I remember asking about the difference between a local and a general anaesthetic, and she said, have a local, then you'll know it happened and never make this mistake again. I asked her at the time about other options, and she said, do you want to finish uni? I said, of course, and. She replied, well, you can't have a child. I don't remember making the decision, just that this was what I was expected to do. It seemed there'd be no support and no future for me if I were to have this child. Well, when I was 40, um, I aborted my baby. At the time, I thought I was making a really um, easy decision, you know, like a quick fix. But no-one told me how
0: that decision was going to affect my life. I was already a mother of two, and here I was, choosing to destroy one of my babies. And they told me that, just think of it as a period, just think of the abortion as a a period. But they didn't tell me about the depression, the, the guilt, the shame, the pain that would haunt me for years. Just think, if only someone had said something to me, or if I knew that there were other options. If, you know, if I'd read about the devastating effects of an abortion um, following the abortion, no one said anything. Um, I, I think it's um I think it's really important that we hear uh, stories like that. But at the same time, you may be surprised about what I say next: is that I, I don't think we can a- actually ask mothers like that, to actually carry a baby to full term and to care for it when all sorts of things are going on in their life, if we're not prepared to actually create the sort of community for them that makes that seem doable. What our churches are meant to be like and what I want our church to be like is that we're like an oasis of care. And so the option of aborting a baby just seems totally undoable, it seems so unattractive. I mean, it's why organisations like Anglicare in Sydney have set up programs like Caramar. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Caramar. Caramar was set up to support pregnant women and also younger mothers and their children uh, who are finding life difficult and to encourage them to keep their babies and to raise them, right? And a program like Caramar sets up accommodation. It sorts out um, group counselling. It helps with case management. There's other forms of counselling. There is early childhood support. And I think we need to do all those sorts of things because we need to sort of create the sort of communities of care that make it easier for mums to do the thing that they're finding it hard to do and that is to keep their babies. Now, I think most of us would agree that abortions of convenience, if you could ever call them that, are horrendous. I've heard of people that have had an abortion because it ruined their European travel plans, um, that it would affect their career, uh, that, uh, that their baby was the wrong sex. Uh, that, that's awful. Right? Or a bloke that insists that his girlfriend have an abortion, uh, because he's not man enough to care for it. The little baby. Uh, can I say that that's horrendous? Uh, can I say men that the Bible is pretty clear? Uh, if you're not ready to be a father, don't have sex. Right? Sex is for married men, not boys i right, be very clear on that. Um, but also some might say this, well, it's Luther, all very well and nice, but it's my body, thanks very much. It, you're talking to my life, you can't speak into my life, I can do as I please. And can I say that that's sort of true. It is very true that the mother of a baby is one of the two most affected people by a situation like this. But can I humbly say when someone says, I have the right to do that, it's my body to do whatever I want. That's a sort of crass moral relativism that just isn't right. You know, whatever I prefer to do, I'll, I'll do. And you, you can't tell me what to do. God can't tell me what to do. My friends can't tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. I will do what I want to do. And none of us believe that. Because if you take that to its logical conclusion then all sorts of things could happen. You could justify anything. You could justify murder, you could justify theft, you could justify adultery, you could justify anything. A criminal will go to the law courts and say, look, hey, this is what I wanted to do, I did what I wanted to do, and how could you tell me what I what It's my choice, isn't it? Now, that's ridiculous. And there are two people involved in this decision. There is a mum, and there is a baby, and a father. But this debate always goes like this for us Christians. We always do this. We always put the right of the mother up against the right of the baby. And can I say that I don't think that's always that helpful because if we're a community that really values children, if we really think that children are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, then we'll do everything that we can to support their mums and their dads. And I don't think we always do. I don't think we do. Yes, abortion is legal in Australia after 20 weeks. That doesn't make it right. Uh, we, Christians have always stuck up for the most vulnerable in our society. We always have, even against governments who try and attack the vulnerable. right? But these little ones need our protection. But so do their mums and dads. They need our help. Oh, they do. And there are many in our church who would love to find and support a young mother or an older mother, and help her raise her baby. There was many of us who would love to do that. And we need to be that sort of community that provides that sort of care so that abortion seems really less attractive. For example, if a young girl walked into our youth group next Friday night and she said, you know what guys, I I think I've made a mistake. Um, I'm pregnant. And, And I know that in Jesus, I'm I'm washed clean and his, his death has, has brought my forgiveness, but I, I need help to raise this little baby. And I hope that our youth group would rally around that young girl and the families of our church would rally around that young girl and we would do everything we can to support her and to love her. But you know what the tragedy is? That lots of young girls would rather have an abortion than tell their youth group leader that they're pregnant. That is an absolute tragedy. And may it never happen in our church. May we be so loving and so caring and such a community that that would never be a thought that that would happen. Now of course that there are situations where for a mother to carry a baby to full term is almost risking her life emotionally and physically. But it's at that moment we determine as a community how caring we are and whether our religion is real or not. That's, that's what happens here. Now what about what about this topic? What about contraception? I don't know if you've ever thought about this uh, as a Christian. Uh, uh, some people say this if it's if it's not okay to abort children, then why aren't people more careful to find out what their contraceptive actually does? That's a really good question. Uh, do you know that contraception's been around a long, long time? Uh, the ancient Egyptians had contraception uh, in a thousand BC. Uh you can go back into their records and there, there are recipes for contraception uh, that include uh to stop getting pregnant that include crocodile dung, honey, acacia tips and dates. Now don't draw too many pictures, but um, thankfully we technology's advanced since then and we you know, we're the generation that has grown up not knowing a time when safe contraception hasn't been available. Uh, The contraceptive pill has been around for most of us the whole time. But you know, it's really interesting to note that Christians have thought that all forms of contraception have been wrong right up until 1930. Both Protestants and Catholics, so Martin Luther, Calvin, all the reformers, all thought contraception was wrong. It's only since 1930 that Anglicans have actually said that they think it's okay. Now, I'm not going to make an argument for or against contraception tonight. I'm just going to say that I think contraception within a married relationship uh, that helps a couple that would otherwise are looking forward to having children, but just not right at this moment, by God's grace, that they would use contraception in their marriage. That's okay. Why is that? Well, because in 1 Corinthians 7 and other places in the Bible, it shows us that sex is not just for producing children. Sex is for the sake of husbands and wives and their relationship with each other So much so that for a husband or a wife to deny each other without each other's permission would be seen as sinful. And so you don't have to have the aim of producing a child in order to have sex. And so it's okay to use contraception as a Christian couple. But are there types of contraception that we might consider to be unethical? Yes, absolutely. But we have to understand a bit of biology for this. And for those of you who know the biology, uh, bear with me. Right? But we need to make good decisions on this. For example, any type of contraception that is works pre fertilization, in other words, it stops ovulation, it stops a woman's egg from coming down and joining together um with the sperm, right, as most contraceptive pills do and implants like implanon and things like that, where it makes it virtually impossible to fall pregnant, that would be considered an ethical thing to do. Right? Uh, but I remember when Lenore and I discovered, with absolute horror, we've been married 14 years and we discovered this um, well into our married life, uh, that not all contraceptive pills work like that. They don't all stop pregnancy from happening. I remember with horror when we found out that the mini pill, which many women take during breastfeeding, doesn't always work like that. So when there's uh, something like the mini pill, which many women take, when it's taken with breastfeeding, it does a very good job, 98% of the time, very good job at stopping ovulation. But if the mini-pill is taken without breastfeeding, then it only works about in 50% of the time. So in 50% of the time, an egg may be released. There's a very good chance, therefore, that as a couple you could become pregnant. But the other thing that the mini-pill does is it makes the line of the uterine wall very thin basically makes the uterus hostile to an embryo. And so when you become pregnant, the embryo has no chance of implanting and basically is aborted. If you were to use the mini pill without breastfeeding, it's basically acting like an abortive drug. Why do doctors not tell us this stuff? It makes me really upset. And I can remember Laura and I sitting in our doctor's surgery And he just looks at us and tells us this after we'd gone and found out the information, right? The key for us as Christians that care about this is to actually work out what the contraceptives that we're using, what they actually do. And if they work post-fertilisation, in other words, after a baby is formed, then they'd be unethical and we shouldn't use them. And there's a table that I've put in your outline that's from Megan's book that sort of summarises some of it and... May be helpful in thinking this through. Can I say that if we have some doctors here, so I don't want to offend you, who are doctors, okay? But your local GP generally has no idea what he's talking about or she's talking about, right? They don't understand this. The, the many doctors that we went and spoke to, they had no idea that the pill that they had just prescribed to us, what it did. How could they not know that? It's because technology races ahead and they don't have enough time to read, and so they just don't understand. So, as Christians, we do our homework, and we teach our doctors. That's, that's what we ought to do. That's what we ought to do. We ought to think about these things. Um, now, I know this is probably the most painful topic I'll draw on tonight, and I'll finish with this. What happens when becoming pregnant just isn't happening? Here's a verse from Proverbs. It says, Three things. And never satisfied. For never say enough. Sheol, a childless womb. Earth, which is never satisfied with water. And fire, which never says enough. A couple being infertile is amongst the most painful and awful things that a married couple will go through. Um, can I say that I don't know this from experience? I mean, it's hard enough watching friends. We've watched many friends... Go through infertility. I can't, I only possibly imagine how awful it would be uh, to go through this. Um, lots of married couples that come and meet with me before they get married, when they're talking about having children, rightfully they're saying they're not saying if, they're they're trying to work out when. It's not if. It's always when. You know, probably three, four, five years time. But it's you never think of if because you've never tried to have children before, and so the thought that you wouldn't have children just never crosses they and that's understandable. And also, do you know that being infertile can be a very lonely place in a church? Why? Because this place is like Kids Central. Like it's Kids Holiday Club this, which is awesome, by the way. But just kids everywhere. And so if you're a couple who's struggling to have children, churches are often a very difficult place to be. And every month, the pain just increases. And it comes month after month. Now, in more recent times, technology has changed. And so things have come along, assisted reproductive technologies, most commonly uh, IVF, that's given the hope to many couples of becoming parents. And that's a good thing. Uh, for example, I saw this uh, on the newsstand when I was at Woolies this week. Uh, this is the cover of um, of New Idea, and it's got Lisa Curry on the cover. And Lisa Curry has now become pregnant with her fourth child via IVF uh, at the age of 51. Now, I saw that on the stand, and can I say that that's wonderful, by the way. However a baby comes, that is wonderful. But I also think that that is very irresponsible, to put that on in a magazine. Do you know that only 25% of couples who do IVF ever have a baby? And the chances of becoming pregnant at the age of 51 are next to zero. It is very irresponsible to do that. It is so unrealistic and so unloving of people who are going through that process. The blessing of children is always wonderful no matter how they come. But the trouble is is that if a couple was thinking about IVF and Christian couples can think through IVF, there is ethical ways to do it, of course. But the technology surrounding it is so complex that often you actually have to decide that you will get the right information and you will think through it carefully. But the problem is is that if you are infertile, it can be so painful and so hurtful that if a doctor promises that there's a possibility for having a baby, you're so excited about that that just all thinking can sometimes go out the window. And it's at that point that you need friends who love you and who are well-informed and who can talk to you. Right? Because sometimes just stopping and thinking about it isn't something that you're able to do. I mean, in the Bible, was it Rachel who said to her husband Jacob, give me children or I shall die. That's how strong the pull to have children is and it's a real important urge and it's perfectly natural. Now, it's true that many fertility clinics will respect your beliefs as Christians, but lots won't and they'll consider you to be troublemakers if you have IVF. Because in short, we believe that every fertilised embryo is a baby. It is a precious one, made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made and deserving of our protection. Every embryo, whether made in a petri dish or whether made in the womb, is worthy of our protection. It is a little neighbour that God has called us to love. And so Christian couples will want to have every single fertilised embryo implanted and given the chance for life. That's what they'll want. That's what we ought to want. But clinics did not want you to do that. Often fertility clinics, because it costs a lot of money, $10,000, something like that, uh, they'll want you to fertilise 10, 15, 20 embryos. Give you the best chance of pregnancy. You then implant as many as you need to to have the, the amount of children that you would like to have, and then you discard the rest afterwards. Now, as Christians, we would not want to do that because every fertilised embryo is a baby. Now, other countries have different laws on this that are much stricter than ours. In Italy, for example, they favour the adoption of embryos over producing new ones. In Germany, right? Germany, um, uh, the Constitution says that the state actually has a duty to protect its citizens from harming each other and the government actually takes on that duty to protect the unborn. And the government in Germany has said that if you do IVF, then you can only produce the number of embryos that you plan to implant and give a chance for life. In Australia, in US, US, um, I think in Britain, it's we are much more lax than that. Uh, and at the moment, there are 120,000 or so frozen embryos in Australia, uh, up from 70,000 only 10 years ago. Now, how we treat those embryos shows us the sort of society in Australia that we want to be. What do we want to be? Um, the questions go like this: Should we use those excess frozen human embryos for medical research? And if you use them for medical research, then obviously they don't grow and they don't—they—they they perish, basically. Now, Bob Carr famously talked about this. Oh, I haven't got a picture up there, but I'll tell you this: I don't know if you remember this. But um, Bob Carr, he got, uh, do you remember Christopher Reeve, Superman? And he became a quadriplegic, tragically. And, and Bob Carr brought uh Christopher Reeve out to Australia and he put him on a platform and he said, this is the quote, he said this, he said, if Superman could walk again through this research, who are we to stop it? Right? If using these little embryos helps a man like Christopher Reeve, who was a quadriplegic, walk again, who are we to stop it? Pretty powerful emotive argument, yeah? But that's the worst kind of consequentialism. Right? The ends do not justify the means. They don't. Right? That's how society does ethics. If the outcome is good, it doesn't matter what you do to get there as long as the outcome is good. That is not true killing babies for human, for research, no matter what the outcome will be of that research, can never be described as something as being good and could never be justified in any circumstance. But then again, do you know we as as Christians, we can help with this? Um, If you have a baby, um, you know there's a little cord between mum and baby. In that cord, doctors tell me, is the cord blood and you can donate that, so you can tick a little box, I forget how it happens, but you can donate that cord blood. The, the cells that are in there can be used for the type of research that Bob Carr was talking about. They're not embryonic humans, they're not babies, there's nothing like that, but the cells can be used in there for research. We don't need to use embryonic humans for research. There are other ways of getting around it, and we as Christians can actually help. And so what if, say you were a couple and you were thinking about IVF? Uh, what are the sort of questions you should be thinking about before starting it? Well, uh, have a look at your outline. I've just written a few suggestions down that Megan puts in her book and I think these are very helpful. And um, Firstly, if you were thinking about this, you want to know what is involved. You've got to get the facts. Um, secondly, you'd want to think, will the specialist respect your theological views? Thirdly, you'd want to think, will the number of embryos created be limited? So this number shouldn't be higher than the number of children that you're actually willing to have. And can they be transferred regardless of their appearance? Do you know what that means? Is that sometimes in fertility clinics, they don't want to transfer embryos because they don't look like they'll have a chance at life. As a Christian, you will want to give every embryo a chance at life, regardless of its appearance. Or number four, is having a, your own biological child the only possibility that you would consider? Friends of ours recently adopted an embryo. You can now do that in Australia. And now, and now after many years, they're pregnant with a little, little baby. And it's just wonderful. you have to have your own biological child? Could you give one of these embryos a chance to life? and they have, and they are beautiful people. And also in this, uh, who are the people who are actually going to pastorally counsel you through this decision? Because at this time, often you it's very difficult to think clearly, and you need an older married Christian couple who are going to be careful and gracious with you, but also speak the truth to you when you need to hear it. Because often fertility clinics will allow you to continue treatment when they know that there's no chance basically of you having a baby, but they'll keep taking your money. You need people who are going to love you through this process, and so I want to conclude by saying that on all of this, in thinking it through, in thinking through abortion, and thinking through IVF, and thinking through contraception, and thinking about human uh, embryonic stem cell research, for example, um, I think we need to be a bold, informed, and caring community. Uh, firstly, we need to be informed. Do you know that lots of legislators come to Christians and say? You guys, it would be great if you actually knew what you were talking about. Often as Christians we don't know what we're talking about. And so when governments suggest laws, we're we're caught behind the eight ball because we don't know. The other reason why we need to be informed is that there will be people in this room who are making a decision on this right now. And you need to know enough to love them to talk to them. But so we need to be informed. Secondly, we need to be bold. Do you know that Jesus called on us to be a city on the hill? not to be a lamp that's hidden under a bowl. Right? We're actually meant to do something. So when your MP, your local MP, suggests a law that's different to what we think as Christians, do you know what we ought to do? You ought to write a letter. <laughs> write a letter to your MP and tell them why the law is wrong. Be bold. right? Speak out on social media. Sign up to the change.org petition. Right? Don't be sucked into blandianity. Do you know what blandianity is? Landianity is Christianity without Christ. It's Christianity without Jesus as Lord. It's Christianity that doesn't want to offend anyone. It's Christianity that's not bold. Don't get sucked into that. And talk to your friends and try and persuade them and influence them based on the Scriptures because you love them. Be bold. But the final thing we need to be is be a community that cares for each other. Because we've got to be the sort of community that when people are going through hard decisions that we walk alongside each other and we help work with each other with the outcome of what our particular choices might be. And actually, as a church, we can model to the wider community of what real humanity looks like. you know this is a wonderful community, right? And people look in and they go, what, what is, why do you do the stuff that you do? And so we need to model to the rest of our society what treating humans like humans looks like. And protect, particularly tonight, how we protect the unborn. Those who have no voice. And who need our protection. We can do that as a community. Jesus called on us to be a city on the hill. Not a lamp that's hidden under a bowl. That you can't see. Right? Because are we going to be the Christian generation that 60, 70, 80 years time, Christians look back on us and they go, how did you guys let that through? I can't believe you as Christians didn't stand up and didn't say anything because you were too cowardly to speak out. Are we going to be that generation? Or are we going to be the city on the hill? Better be bold and caring. Um, do you know that as a community, this is a privilege to, um, as you would know, many of you would know, uh, Brendan and Kate, um, have had their boys uh, via IVF and it's a wonderful thing. And, and I often wonder, as um, as Brendan and Kate care for their little boy Finn, who was born with spina bifida, I, I know that people who aren't Christians, they, they look at the way that Kate and Brendan care for their little boy and that the way that the Christian community gathers around them and cares for him and they wonder, who is this Jesus that energises the care that they have for him? And who is this Jesus that energises the care that this community has shown to them as a family? Who is he? Right, because little Finn is a little boy who is fearfully and wonderfully made by God. He is perfectly made in the image of God. And he is being cared for by the people of God. That is what God intended. And the measure of our real Christianity, if it's fair income that we love Jesus is that we protect the most vulnerable and we care for them and we love them. Um, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are, each of us, fearfully and wonderfully made. Made in your image. Worthy of your protection. And our protection. Father, we thank you that you love us, that you bring us into communities of care. And we pray, Father, as a church, that we would be a community that so cares for those who are going through tough decisions in this area that the thought of making an unethical decision just wouldn't cross their minds. Father, we thank you that you can, we have the freedom to talk about these things. We pray, Father, you would help us to continue to be gracious with each other and, and truthful. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.